The following is a presentation of Chris Sloan Media in association with 606 Paranormal. Prom night. The night most younger people usually look forward to as a rite of passage that slowly begins adulthood. It's usually a night filled with magic and memories that are never forgotten. It was May 18, 1991, a Saturday. The flowers were in bloom and the birds sang as winter bounced to spring in the small town of Paintsville, Kentucky, nestled in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. As the night fell, so would heartbreak. It had rained that day about two-tenths of an inch with temperatures that were around 70. A typical spring day in anywhere USA. This was the kind of town where nothing all that bad ever really happened. And then, a tragedy at Paintsville Lake that would leave so many wondering for so long, three decades as a matter of fact. Some say it was an accident. Many others would say, hell no, it was murder, plain and simple. In the end, though, two would be dead. April Renee Pennington, who only five days earlier had turned 16, and Timothy Stambo. He was only 24 years young. What you are about to hear may sound like a work of fiction woven in intricate webs of astounding inconsistencies and moments that scream, that can't be right. But oh, according to those you'll hear from, it is right. And if it is, there's something wrong. These are the Mountain Mysteries. And this is Episode 1, Tragedy at Paintsville Lake. The Mountain Mystery of April Renee Pennington. I will be the last to fall. I won't shed a tear for them to see. Over 24% of the 1.9 billion square acres in America alone, the mountains that so many people call home, also play host to some of the most staggering mysteries in the world. The missing. And she said, I knew I wasn't there anymore. The murdered. All my emotions just went blank, just like just blank. And I still live with that today. I think about that so much today as he was in that water. Strange creatures. Whatever it was that was standing up. I'm out here looking through the window now and I don't see anything. I don't want to go outside. I mean, it was a, nope, we need to get out of town. Unexplained lights and sightings. It does not look like an airplane. They come together and then they separate and they just keep doing this all the time. These stories may be strange. They may be sad. They may be odd but they are mysterious. These are the Mountain Mysteries, and now your host, Chris Sloan.
Losing someone that we love is never easy, but when a child is lost, I honestly can't begin to comprehend that level of grief and despair that has to be associated with it. I can only imagine that the memories that we cling to must be more important than ever before. I remember uh, going into the delivery room and her doctor hadn't made it over from his office yet at Paul B. Hall Medical Center. And uh, when April came out, I bent over and looked at her and she had all this long, dark hair. And I said, there's my April Renee. I named her right there. And uh, they had her in the little room where they keep the babies at and they would bring them out to let the moms feed them and stuff. And I remember standing in the hallway at the door waiting for my little black-haired baby girl to be handed to me, and I wouldn't let her go back into the nursery. That's Sharon, April's mom. You know, being a proud dad, I know that we all love to talk about how special our kids are, because they are. April grew up, she was happy, she... You could tell she was a jokester from from day one. Um, I remember... uh, one time when I'd stopped at the grocery store and to get get her some soda and she uh, saw a bird laying in the middle of the road on the double yellow line. She demanded at age two for me to get out and get that bird. And the bird was already dead. And I told her, I said, April, I said, that bird's done went to heaven. She says, you, you wouldn't go get that bird and now it's dead. So she cried for a day or two and then uh, Another thing that she, I remember her doing is I had lost my driver's license. She was about three years old at this time. I couldn't find my driver's license nowhere. So I went over and paid to get me a new driver's license and I went back to the house and I was changing her, her crib bed and I found my driver's license underneath the mattress. So I said, April. I said, I didn't want to, what was you doing with mommy's license? She says, I just wanted to sleep with you. So she had my driver's license in there. And then, you know, she would take and uh, play hide and seek and climb underneath the sink, underneath the cabinet in the sink, and she would hide. Scared me to death, I didn't know what happened, and then I heard a little giggle, and I went in there and looked, and there she was. I said, April, don't scare mommy like that no more. She said, I was playing hide and seek. She grew up as many did and had a sensitive side to her personality. She loved people, especially those who were close to her, her family, her friends. And she had a fierce passion about that love. And sometimes, as is with most kids who have sisters or brothers, will watch out. Although April loved in a very strong way, when she became upset, it was on. She would have some hot friends that come over, you know, because I was that age. And then I remember once she made me mad and I took a pair of uh, school scissors and cut her bangs off all the way to the scalp. And, yeah, she about killed me on that one. That's Timothy Pennington, April's younger brother. He was only 10 years old when she died. But I did ask him if April was asleep when he came at her hair with those scissors because I cannot possibly imagine any teenage girl letting someone cut their hair while they're fully awake and functional, at least not like that. Turns out that April was asleep, even though there would be hell to pay for him doing that. So, April grew up strong and happy, surrounded by friends and family who loved her. 
She adored animals and had a habit of standing up for people, whether they needed it or not. She was a devoted and passionate friend that left an indelible mark. Then came the high school years at Johnson Central, a massive Class 4A school that was fed by each elementary school in Johnson County, and oh, there were several of them. A high school. Most of us remember it as a time in our lives that we would repeat if we could, as long as we could take what we know now back with us. I think the truth is, is that while we were going through it, many of us thought that a breakup was the end of the world. Big problems. Of course, time marches on, and as adults, we learned what big problems were really like. But April Pennington had problems. One that in particular, apparently was shaping up to be something serious. But I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. Let's back up. Let's go back to a time of that first love. You know the kind. White picket fences, stars in your eyes, that first kiss, holding hands. You know, true love. April had that experience, and for the purpose of this interview, we'll call him John. So, how was John with April when they first got together? At first, uh, it was good. John was very attentive to April, very sweet to her. Um, I had no problem. Kind of everything that a mother hoped that a potential suitor for her daughter would be. Yes, absolutely. But most of us know how these high school romances turn out, at least a great deal of the time. And it wouldn't be long before there would be trouble coming up in that paradise. Coming up, Sharon remembers the first time she felt something was wrong with April. Now, we return to tragedy at Paintsville Lake, the mountain mystery of April Pennington. April Renee Pennington was in love with life, in love with people. She's always loved people, elderly people, handicapped people, and animals. But not everyone was in love with April. How old was April? when you first started noticing a difference in the way she acted? Fifteen. She would go over there and uh, to John's house. Either he would come and pick her up or his mother would. And uh, she just, her demeanor started changing. She, she was like she didn't want to tell me stuff. Not quite as open as she was. No, no. And then a week before she died was really bad because she was coming home from her regular friends. They, she was coming home, she was putting blankets over her window in her bedroom. And I didn't quite know why, but there was a girl. She had been threatening April the whole time and I wasn't aware of it until about a week before she died. We'll call the girl making the threats Brenda. Made up a name for her, but she's very real indeed. She and April had word several times, and according to witness accounts, had come to blows at least once. So what's the reason for the animosity? 
According to what April told me, and according to what April's friends told me, it's because April was so pretty and smart and was well-liked in school, and Brenda wasn't. At some point or another, we're all jealous of something or someone else in our lives. It's human nature. It doesn't go away just with a wave of a magic wand. But if it's not kept in checked, or if it's left unchecked, that jealousy can certainly lead to deeper, more severe problems. I'm not a psychologist, and you don't have to be to recognize red flags when they start to fly. And that's exactly what happened with April and Brenda. So I asked April one day, I said, April, I said, what does this Brenda look like? So we got in the truck and we went over to McDonald's. And Brenda come out of McDonald's, was walking down the sidewalk around, around McDonald's. And April said, there she is. The girl had had her hair colored dark. Now Brenda was a blonde, a dirty blonde. She had cut her hair off short and dyed it dark brown, almost black. Which was the killer of April's. Uh-huh, and uh, April didn't want me to stop. She said, Mom, whatever you do, don't stop. Just go right on, don't stop. And that's all she would say about that, but she was terrified of this girl. The next event almost sounded like something straight out of a horror novel. Shocking. There's no doubt about it. When Sharon told me about this, I actually went to the person who stopped this and confirmed it. Now, they couldn't be interviewed at the time, but she told me, yes, it definitely did happen, just the way she said. Uh, one of the altercations that took place uh, was told to me by a girl that actually stopped it before it happened. Uh, she said she'd went in the bathroom downstairs at Johnson Central, and Brenda had April hemmed up against the wall in the bathroom and had a flare gun with her, going to use it on April. She made Brenda quit and took April and the flare gun up to the office, which nothing was done. A flare gun. That night at Paintsville Lake, April would not be the only person to lose her life. Timothy Hobart Stambo was 24 from Sitka, Kentucky, and by all accounts a great guy, and got along with most anyone who knew him. He was a little on the shy side, but a good guy nonetheless, and he would help anyone that he could if the need arose. You know how small towns are. If not, maybe you've heard. You see, living in a small town is great because if you're not sure of what you're doing, someone else is. Oh, the rumor mill is like the internet. It's always going. Someone somewhere is constantly stirring that pot. Now, the gossip at the time was April had a thing with Tim. The only thing that they had was like that of an older brother and younger sister. Tim would stop at the place of business that the boy, her boyfriend at that time, or I thought was her boyfriend at that time, place of business to get parts and stuff because his brother worked at a garage right around the corner and him and April become friends because he didn't have much money and he come from like a poor family, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that's the type of people that April really gravitated to, people that she could help and, and, and be confident in. April had a lot of friends, no doubt. Remember how we told you about John, April's love interest? Well, now we're going to go into a little more detail. People around the small town of Paintsville knew him fairly well, or they thought so anyway. His family was somewhat prominent in the small community and owned and operated several business interests at the time. 
John himself was said to be, by some, a pretty nice guy, the guy next door, that you like to hang out with, while others said that he had a dark, twisted side that they wanted nothing to do with. Ah, remember those small towns. If they're not talking about one, it's another. The relationship between April and John did appear to be uh, somewhat rocky at times, but it was a first love kind of thing after all. Rocky? Well, maybe a little more than Rocky. An email was sent to April's mom, Sharon, about an extremely specific memory that the sender said she had while she was in Johnson Central High School. This girl shared a class with April. In the email that was sent June 4th, 2010, nearly 20 years later, she wrote, Hey Sharon, I misplaced your email address on this ridiculous desk of mine. I just wanted to share a few details, things I remembered from having classes with and being friends with April. There was definitely no love lost between her and Brenda, that's for sure. Apparently Brenda had slept with April's boyfriend, John. So there was, understandably, issues between them. I never personally heard Brenda make threats, but through others, including April herself that said Brenda threatened to kill her. I did hear Brenda pass April in the hall one day and call her a slut or a whore. It's been a while, so I don't remember which one it was exactly. If it had not been for an approaching teacher, April might have responded, but she only gave her a dirty look. April and I sat together and shared a table in one of our classes, so we talked each day. She came in one Monday with a bruise on her wrist, and I asked her, how'd you get that? She responded, oh, fighting with John. We shared boyfriend troubles and stories. We both had boyfriends at the time that tried to control and be possessive. Shortly before April's death, maybe a week or so, she told me that John was driving her crazy. They had broken up and he would not leave her alone. She said that he called her constantly, was always asking people what she was doing, and would show up where she would be hanging out. She said that he wanted to get back together, but she didn't want to. She was tired of fighting with him. She had said a few times that he was jealous and tried to control her. It's been a long time, so this is about all I can remember. Not sure if it's any help, but I really hope whoever is responsible for April's death is brought to justice. I could not imagine living all these years with no answer if it was my child. You are a strong woman. Good luck. And then the sender signed her name. Many think that jealousy showed its head, and if John had had enough, could he have done the unthinkable? Well, possibly. We're told that John was never questioned about the events the night that April or Timothy died, and nearly 30 years later hasn't been to this day. Nobody but the intoxicated juveniles saw the body in the water. So all this has gone around by their stories two of them. The ones that brought April's body to the hospital, all this, she drowned, we pulled her out of the lake, and all this other stuff surrounding April was given to the authorities by these two intoxicated juveniles. 
nobody else out there heard any noises, no screaming for help, no splashing of water. Uh, they claimed to have went over the bank and saw April floating face down in the water. Prom night, 1991. It was May 18th. Light mist and rain fell as winter's dying breath clung desperately to the hope of preventing spring's arrival. It was a day that April looked forward to. A weekend with friends, prom, and memories that she would carry on with her throughout life. Her mother would never forget this day. It would be the last time she saw her daughter alive. April was all giddy and smiling and and just being April. And she told me, she said, Mom said, uh, there's a houseboat party at the lake. And she said, Tim, Tim is going to come up and pick me up and we're going to just go out and ride around. We may go to that houseboat party. So Tim come up in his truck and he backed in the driveway and April went out and she was wearing this white shirt, white t-shirt. It was an extra large shirt because she didn't like things tight. Mm-hmm. She didn't like to show her breast or anything like that. She liked to be comfortable. Exactly right. And uh, she was wearing a pair of blue jean shorts and her case Swiss tennis shoes and her necklace and a ring. And she went out the door and uh, I said, y'all be careful now. And she said, oh, we will. And her and Tim and the other boy at that time that was with him, who was also out here at the lake when they passed away, they all waved at me and smiled and went on down down the road. That was at about 7 o'clock in the evening? About 7.15. 7.15 yeah. in the evening. Her okay. clock, miraculously, her wind-up clock, alarm clock, had quit at that time. When she left? Yes. And the clock is in a cedar chest, frozen in time. Imagine if you will, or if you can, if only just for a moment, that you're at home. You believe that your child is out having the time of their life. Then you hear it. A knock on the door. I remember a knock on the door around 1, 1 1.15 time frame. And I got up and I opened the door and there was the sheriff, which is uh, Gene Sire, which I did recognize him. But there was another guy with him that told me he was the coroner, J.R. Frisbee. And they just blatantly come out and said there's been an accident April. She's dead. Just like that. It may sound cold and callous, but we always have to remember this is not an episode of Law & Order. This is real life, as real as it gets. And sometimes, I guess, ripping off that band-aid quicker makes more sense than just trying to peel it off slow and easy, because there is no easy. I can't even begin to imagine. Tim recalls the night he got the news also. I got word I was staying with my dad. We lived over in Davis Branch, and uh, I remember we were sleeping. And I don't think I was sleeping in the floor at the time, and he was in his bed. 
and we got a knock on the door and it was the police department in the corner. <laughs> they just talked to dad and that's the first time I ever seen him cry. How much can any one person take? Now, Sharon has to go to Paul B. Hall Regional Medical Center in Paintsville, Kentucky to make positive identification. I was driven to the hospital by my next door neighbor. And when I get over to the hospital, they had, there wasn't none of the group out there, friends, family members or anything. Tim's truck wasn't there. I remember the parking lot was, was bare and I remember going in and being escorted to a seat in the waiting area. And then they come out and got me and took me to this little room, which to this day is a totally different room. It's been, the whole hospital's been renovated, but I can take you to that room to this day. And when you see what I saw, it's embedded in your mind forever. I walked into this room and there was a gurney. And on this gurney, there was something covered up with a white sheet. And they just pulled the sheet down. And when they pulled the sheet down, I stood there still numb. I went over and I touched April's face. I touched her arms. It was cold. It was clammy. She had clothes on. Now, mind you, the ER doctor said that when she was brought in to the hospital in the cab of that truck of Tim's, and they went and got her out. Now, April was just about five foot two, about 135 pounds. It took him, two nurses in the ER, and a security guard to get that little body out of that truck and put it on that gurney. She had no clothes on. So somebody had put clothes on the body. She had jeans on. The shirt that she had on was not the shirt that she left in. Was she found in the lake nude? I'm assuming, I, I don't know. I don't know. I was never told. What did the shirt say? The shirt that they put on her said, you suck. And it had vomit material on the front of it, which I still got the shirt, the shorts, the belt, the bra, and the panties. And the panties were ripped. When I got them back from the Kentucky State Police, the panties were ripped. They had a hole in them. Now remember, we've been operating on the assumption that April was found in the lake. Just keep that in the back of your mind. Now, let's talk a little bit about the T-shirt that was found on April's body. The one that said, you suck. That's what the shirt said. And there's pictures of it. Oh, Sharon's got them. As a matter of fact, she still has the shirt, too. Now, do you remember that Foreman Brothers video I was telling you about that's all over YouTube right now? Well, one of the people that appeared in that video identified that shirt as belonging to someone else that was there the night the drownings, end quote, happened. During that interview, during the documentary that the Foreman Brothers conducted, the woman we're calling Brenda showed up at their request and for the first time in 30 years, spoke on record publicly about April and answered whose shirt that was that said, you suck. It's Chris's. Who's? It's Chris's. Chris. Who's Chris? Chris. He's the one that took her to the hospital. He used to wear that shirt all the time. Chris 
He was one of the people at the Paintsville Lake the night that April and Tim died. 30 years. And now, some people are starting to come forward and tell the story of what happened. If we can believe it. That's right, there's more than one. There's two. Oh, Sharon did eventually get that shirt that April was wearing the day that she left. But how she got it raises some eyebrows. So I got to looking for her shirt, which showed up at the back of her dad's car on Davis Branch about a month later. Showed up where? In the back of her dad's car. He had a little car that had a hatchback in it. And uh, that shirt was found in the back of his car. And he immediately brought it to me. The shirt that she wore when she left. Yes. And the thing about this is that car, the hatchback, had only a certain way that you could open it. So I not did. everybody knew that? No. So whoever put the shirt in there? Had previous knowledge of the car and how to open the hatchback, yeah. So who was the other person that came forward and spoke? Well, her name was Joanna. At the time, she was 14 years old, and she was there. And once again, 30 years later, she comes forward. Now, be warned, the audio on this is just a little bit rough because she actually agreed to have Sharon recorded, and Sharon had a handheld recorder, which works fine. But you just got to listen a little closely. I've tried to reduce some of the background noise, but nonetheless, you're going to hear a startling revelation about where April was found. Well, that's odd. You see, all this time, everyone thought that April was found out in the water with her body laying face down in the water, floating. But if you just heard Joanna, she said that April was found right on top of the rocks. Listen again carefully. Sharon asks her, how far out was she? And Joanna responds, she was right on top of the rocks. She wasn't found out in the lake after all. Now, I don't know if that changes anything or what it would change. But you have to admit, it's rather interesting to find that out. It also turns out that Joanna wasn't done. She recalled something else. On the way to the lake, we were talking. And April says to me, Joanna, if I die, this is the song I want played at my funeral. Now, do you not remember the song tonight? She said, if I was to die tonight, this is what I would want done. She gave me the song's name and said she wanted to be cremated with her ashes spread across the You know, I actually asked Sharon if April had ever, ever had ever presented any kind of evidence that she had gifts or anything like that. You know, some people can see things, as they say. I don't know if you want to call it fortune tellers or psychics or mediums or whatever. 
But Sharon said yes, that April did have certain gifts. I just find it very unsettling that April told Joanna what she wanted at her funeral if she died that night. Coming up in just a few seconds, we're going to talk about what happened after that night that Sharon went to the hospital and identified her body. There were two different autopsies done. Things get really strange. Hundreds of people showed up to April Renee Pennington's funeral, including John and many, many others. It's a testament to how much that April was loved, admired, and cared for. But Sharon was not satisfied with the findings of the first autopsy. Now, do you remember who you heard from earlier? April's younger brother, Timothy? Well, at this time, he had been serving in the United States military and was an MP. So, they came up with an idea. Tell me, what did he do with this autopsy report? He took the autopsy report. Now, mind you, back then, he was a military police officer. So, he wanted to take the report to Fort Knox and show it to uh, a coroner in that area. And he told me that the coroner read the reports. I mean, he had the, the state police report, uh, the whole nine yards. He said the coroner told him that there would be no way in the world that he would rule her death an accidental drowning. A military trained, government certified for the United States Armed Forces coroner says that there's no way in the world that he would classify her death as an accidental drowning. So, Sharon had a second autopsy done. How many autopsies were done? Uh, the coroner had one done, and I had one done personally. And the findings were different? Well, the findings, like I said, the private one, I called her when I got the report and everything, because this was privately done and privately paid for. And her medical legal opinion is a 16-year-old white female died of drowning autopsied and buried. This is the legal opinion from the autopsy report before that she was just going by. Buried approximately four and a half months prior to this autopsy. The first autopsy said she had a blood alcohol, um, according to the previous autopsy, is 0 0.10 grams per ethanol alcohol. It has been something that I've been looking into that when the body dies, it starts producing ethanol alcohol on the moment it dies. New research. And uh, she could not come to any other conclusion because of the fact that uh, there was bones and body parts missing. Um, can you be a little? Can you elaborate a little on that? What was missing? We know that some of her ear. Uh, let's see. Now they're, they're in the second autopsy. Okay. The upper airways, the hyoid bone, the pineal gland was not there. Um, the larynx was not open. It was not identified. Whoa, 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 whoa. back up! The, uh, the hyoid bone was mm -hmm. gone. Yes, and the Hathaway bone, for people that don't know what that is, is a little U-shaped, very fragile bone that sits in the back of your throat that controls the opening of food going to your stomach and air going to your lungs. That was not in there. It's not in the body. I have the report that says it was not identified. To me, identified means it was not there. The, the only way that's removed, going to go anywhere is if somebody takes it out. Well, the previously removed neck organs, including the larynx, was not there uh, either. I mean, they weren't opened. The upper airways were not identified. Uh, the right lung, which was still intact. I'm reading this directly from the report. Then we go down here. The esophagus is still attached. 
and not previously opened. The appendix was not identified. The remaining portion of the uterus was not identified. But all that other stuff was not identified in the body, which is important to identifying exactly what happened, especially the upper airways and everything. But she did find the cyst on the ovaries. Cyst, the second autopsy, Dr. Julia Gooden, who's passed away now, found cyst on the ovaries. Now, the ovaries is more finer than than these other organs, you know. If she can find the cyst, what happened over here to the other ones? Wait a minute. The hyoid bone missing? Now, I'm not a doctor, but I actually did some research and looked this up, and I actually did speak to a physician. The hyoid bone almost never breaks or fractures on its own. It's always some kind of, quote, external force, end quote. Now, this physician told me, who did wish to remain anonymous, that when people throw up hard enough, it can fracture. But he said most of the time when the hyoid bone breaks, that's a telltale sign of asphyxiation or strangulation, you know, as in somebody wrapped something around your throat and choked you to death. Now, I understand I'm not saying that that's what happened, but I am saying that it's really strange that we can't find out because it was missing. Why in the blue hell would somebody take that? Well, the only reason that you can think of is probably the only reason that I can think of. A few years after April's death, in 1993, I believe it was, October, Sharon went to the ER at Paul B. Hall and actually talked to the attending physician that night. His name was Dr. Oretta. Now, here's where the plot thickens again. He said it was the general consensus of the ER workers and staff that night that April did not drown. Don't take my word for it. Take his. She didn't drown, you know. Well, if she didn't drown, then what the hell did happen? Because that's a direct contradiction of what the initial report said. That her death was the result of freshwater drowning. Sharon has her theories, and Tim does as well. I think that my daughter and the bunch that she was with was riding through the plaza, and certain people found out that they were there and where they were going, and it was either out there hiding and wanted to do something that they shouldn't have been doing, whether it was a fight that got out of hand that resulted in the deaths, or whether it was just right out, we're going to kill her and throw her in the water because the emergency room doctor again said that April had been dead a long time. I said, who died first? And when I asked him that question, 
I was wanting to know because I did not want my dog, I could not imagine April stand, standing, sitting, swimming or whatever and seeing somebody drown in front of her knowing what type of child she was. He said she died first. I said, how long had she been dead? He said, for a very long time. I said, 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes? He said, longer. But also in the report, it states that Tim Thambo's family, or that the people at, in the, uh, that drove the ambulance that brought Tim Stambo to the hospital was upset to despite the fact that they actually got a heartbeat on him before they got him to the hospital. And the doctors and staff didn't do anything to help him. It's in the police report. Sharon actually provided me with a copy of the EKG. Sure enough, 70 beats per minute. That was Timothy Stambo's heartbeat. So why, when they got to the hospital, didn't they try to do something? Maybe he'd been under the water too long and he was brain dead? I, I, I don't know. But that's the thing about this particular case. There's a lot of that going around. The I don't knows. April's brother Timothy also has some thoughts himself on what he thinks happened. Well, I definitely 100% think, don't think that she drowned. You know, because number one is, I remember seeing the autopsy in the mercy room photos and she had a busted mouth, she had hair pulled out from behind her head, she had like a ligature thing around her neck, mm -hmm. um, and then in the autopsy photo she had all kind of bruises on her, you know. You don't get that from drowning. And secondly, you know, the other guy that passed away that night, I remember seeing him in the Jones of Preston's and all of his knuckles was busted up, he had knots on his head, you know, and you don't get that from drowning. I mean, you can go out here, kill somebody, throw a bucket of water on them. Hey, I found them over here, you know, in the lake and they drowned. Well, all right, your words are good enough. You know, that's the way I feel that happened. You know, I don't know what your opinion is, but I'd like to think that life goes on after this one, that this isn't the end. I've had experiences that I can't explain. I've tried, but... It seems that Sharon had a few, too, from someone that she knows. It was approximately six months after she passed away. I had went to bed, and I had a waterbed. And I remember the waterbed giving on the left-hand side like somebody had crawled in beside of me. I remember turning over, and there was April. And, I mean, I could smell her, her body odor. You know, I could just about taste it. It was in the bed give again and the spirit went to the foot of the bed and turned around and says, Mom, don't go to the Painsful Lake. Just like that and just disappear. The thoughts that a loved one or loved ones can come to us and do come to us, be it in our dreams or in our waking hours, it's not uncommon. The smell of perfume. Maybe you laid your keys down here and found them there. Whatever it may be, the one thing that it certainly is can be very comforting. There is one undeniable fact. April has passed on. So has Tim. But they left an indelible mark on everyone's lives that they touched. And that was a great many people. We are the better for knowing them. And the world seems a little darker without them.
I suppose in a way that she's really why I got into this podcasting thing. So, however short or long this career goes, I will make a promise in honor of her and in honor of Timothy Stambo that every episode I do that deals with the deaths of loved ones, I will treat them with the utmost respect and give them every bit of energy I've got to do them honor and to do them justice. If you enjoy The Mountain Mysteries, please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. That helps us so much. You can also help support The Mountain Mysteries by visiting our sponsors, whose links are below, or by donating at Patreon or the PayPal link shown in the notes. Patreon subscribers will receive early commercial-free episodes and more.